Um, a welcome today to Nick James. Um, Nick, you uh, uh, need no introduction, the huge footprint you've put in prostate cancer, in a number, and bladder cancer, actually, but um, in prostate cancer particularly, uh, and one of those big footprints has been with the Stampede study, which again has got a, uh, um, a big presence at ASCO 2020. And Nick, do you want to just introduce yourself quickly, because I know you've changed institution relatively recently, and then if you, if you could then just summarise the results of the... Uh, uh, of your presentation at ESMO, that'd be terrific. Sure. Yeah. So, yeah, Nick James. So, I, for many years, I was in Birmingham, um, at the University of Birmingham and the Queen Elizabeth. I moved um, last year to the Royal Marsden Hospital for my clinical base, and my academic base is now the Institute of Cancer Research, um, which is where I'm spending most of my time. Um, obviously, been a strange time with all the COVID stuff happening. But, uh, yeah, it's a very exciting place to be. There's a lot of talented. Um, doctors and researchers at both places. Um, so Nick, what are, the, uh, what are the results of your trial of your ESMO presentation? What's the, uh, what's the top line? So the main uh, point about this is that we've split the abrasterone population from Stampede, um, which includes, as you'll recall, high-risk, locally advanced, no positive and the like, and um, metastatic. And um, so our, we initially presented the results as a full set of data in 2017 with about three years follow-up. We've now got around six years of follow-up, um, so rather more mature data. Um, and we, this time we've just presented the M1 results. We're planning to separately present the M0 data jointly with the M0 patients from uh, Aunt Jake, the Aunt, in the hope that pooling the two zero parts of the trial will um, allow us to potentially nail survival advantage for adding plus or minus ENSA in M0 patients. Um, so that's, uh, that data will be maybe next year, maybe the year after we're still following the patients. But anyway, the, the data we presented here is that the, is the M1 on their own. The bottom line is that the hazard ratio is almost identical to um, the hazard ratio for the M1 patients back in um, 2017. There's around just over a thousand patients in this part of the trial. Um, so the hazard ratio in 2017 for these thousand patients was um, uh, 0.61, and it's now 0 .0. I think the most noteworthy thing is we now have median survivals for both arms, uh, Control and Abbey. So the median survival is, um, uh, excuse me, figures, um, goes up from uh, 3.8 years on the control arm, um, very much in line with the, our previous dosotaxel patients, um, to 6.6 years. So, wow. so, so yeah, so three point, just over, just under three years, 2.8 years median survival gain from upfront Abbey, which is obviously colossal. Um, so I don't yeah. want to talk about that straight off uh, before I plan on through the rest. Yeah, Nick, this is Brian Reaney. First of all, thanks for joining and congrats on all of Stampede. I mean, that's it's just been a tour de force, really innovative design and, and obviously producing data. I mean, that, that six plus years, I, I use that number or the number from, from other similar trials, you know, in that first conversation with patients, you know, because that's obviously the question people ask is how long am I going to live? And I, I find that comforting and this number is, is even more comforting at six plus years. It is. It's, it is astounding, actually, isn't it? And, yeah. and 
the, the thing that is very interesting, so the, the delta is, is 2.8 years. The delta on the, the failure-free survival, so our stampede failure-free survival is a composite of PSA and local distance and so on failure. And the delta on that is 3.3 years. So, so there's a, a six-month, 0.5 years, six-month gap between the two, which is pretty much what the impact is of abirasterone or enzalutamide in CRPC. So you've got a catch-up of one line of therapy, but the catch-up is obviously much smaller than your initial win. Um, so, um, yeah, so the median time to failure goes up from just under a year to 4.3 years on Abbey. This is the pooled entire population. So it's, yeah, massive effects. And the other thing that's interesting about this is that we did our long-term docetaxel follow-up at ESMO last year, and the effects the curves come together-ish towards six or seven years. They don't cross, but the, the, the hazard ratio is not proportional along the whole duration of follow-up for DOSI, whereas these hazard ratios for all outcomes are proportional. That's to say that the proportional gain is the same at six mm -hmm. years, as it is at one year, two years. You, um, you think that's just a result of ongoing therapy with Abby versus docetaxel or some other reason? Um, yeah, I guess it, obviously we're using them in a different way. Um, obviously, those you just get a hit at the beginning, and then so it wouldn't be surprising if the effect was waning six years later. But but by six years, you, you're way out beyond the median times of failure. So it. it it does suggest that Abby does something different to the biology to dosi as well. I mean, it's a different class of drug, of course, so it's not implausible that it might. Um, so, yeah. The other thing that we did, um, because obviously Latitude, the you know companion trial, as it were, um, it only had high-risk patients in. So we've retrospectively classified the patients um, into Latitude, high and low risk, and also charted high and low volume. Mm -hmm. uh, now, we've only got around 90% of the patient's um, scans only. I mean, yeah, so it's, it's plenty, but it's not the whole yeah. set. Um, and, um, and, and essentially, there's no evidence of either a risk or a volume effect, which you wouldn't expect, but it's just useful to see it confirmed. So the hazard ratios are near enough identical for latitude, high and low risk, and charted high and low volume. So I have a question about <clears throat> duration of ABI. So in, in kidney cancer, where we're giving TKI IO regimens, you know, there's a question about yeah. gee, how long do you need the TKI, et cetera? Can you stop? Yeah. And we don't know, of course. Is that discussion going on here? Because six years of ABI is a long, you know, is a lot. Is there any discussion about limiting that duration? Does that make sense at all? Yeah, no, it does indeed. So um, the... So just in terms of how many on Abbey, so it's about 500 in the metastatic part, and the, the Abbey was still progression, and a quarter of them are still on treatment. I haven't actually got the median duration on treatment, actually. But, um, yeah, just I know from my own practice that I've got patients on it from 2011. So they're getting very long durations of exposure. So one of the things we are concerned about, and we've got, I've got an MD student looking at this, is you know, do we see excess late cardiovascular or bone or whatever toxicity from all of that extra Abbey? Um, so there's a safety concern. With the toxicity data as measured doesn't seem to show any concerns, to be honest. The, the rates of grade three, grade four, at four years are the same for ADT as they are for ADT Abbey. So we're not seeing a, a, a sort of gross signal mm -hmm. in terms of safety, but I just on, on a sort of more micro level there might be. But the other but the, the other question is do you need all that treatment to get the, the effect? And obviously right. we, we've got um, uh, in the M0 part of the 
mild, but treatment was capped at two years if they got radiotherapy. Mm. And um, and the hazard ratios in the M0 are, we haven't reanalyzed them this time, mm. but in the 2017 paper, they were identical. If anything, they were a bit better. It, it did look like there was some sort of synergy between um, radiotherapy and um, abirafarone actually increasing the effect. So there didn't seem to be, you know, with two years treatment, we were seeing the same effects on all outcomes as we've seen with longer durations. Um, Do you have uh, data effects. in the M1 population for patients who had to stop Abby for toxicity? I assume that was 10% or so, whatever the number is, and their yeah. outcomes, recognizing it's a subset, of course. Sure. That's an interesting question. Um, we haven't done that analysis, but actually that's a good question, actually. And we'll, we'll, I'll, I'll get the stats to you. We haven't written the, we're writing the paper at the moment. So, um, yeah. We'll, we'll, that's a very good question. Yeah, I mean, obviously it's a, it's a select group and they stopped for some reason. And it's, again, I don't know what the number is, but let's say it's 10% or so, but it's at least hypothesis generating if they, if they don't all fall off the cliff, right? If they, if they persist yeah. in their benefit or their survival or whatever endpoint. Yeah, absolutely. There's another interesting effect if you give them two years of treatment, as we did in M the M0. So the, the, the numbers of relapses that we saw on treatment in that two years was it was literally single figures. So out of 500 patients, it was fewer than five, I think, actually relapsed whilst on ADT Abbey. So, um, so all the relapses that occurred um, post two years on the ADT Abbey, um, you could re-challenge. Um, you haven't exhausted yeah. the effect. So we have we we have we will do that analysis. We haven't done that follow up analysis. Um, but I mean, there were so few patients that relapsed back in 2017 in the M0 uh, ABT Abbey that, that there was no meaningful analysis to be done of what happened to them on relapse. Um, but we will do that. Yeah, I mean, um, you, you could envision you know some sort of intermittent therapy in that subset of patients that makes sense just based on other yeah. prostate cancer data. Uh, absolutely. I, th I think the, um, I, I mean, we, we talked about when we set it up, we, we, we talked about asking a, a, a duration question, um, but um, we didn't in the end, obviously, not least of which, because obviously it would have increased the size of the trial by 50%. Right. Um, so um, that was obviously a huge. So the best news about this podcast is we've lost Tom, which explains why it's going so smoothly. Um, I was say, it's very quiet. It's yeah. very quiet. Yeah, it's very quiet and orderly, which is is the yeah. opposite of when Tom's here. But um, so I, I have a question. So I, you know, I see prostate cancer in the clinic, but I don't, you know, I don't really do it academically, so I'm not as knee deep in the data. But yeah. you know, obviously, Enza has data and yeah. other secondary hormonal maneuvers or, or novel hormonal therapy. Do you think there's a meaningful difference there? Is it just dealer's choice? I mean, how do you decide? Obviously, you've been involved with this trial, but I'm just trying to, you know, give the yeah. listeners a big picture for the the you know the hormone sensitive patient that walks in let's just take the m1 patient to keep it simple yeah yeah so so, so i think there's two ways of looking at it i think in terms of efficacy the hazard ratios are almost yeah they're, they're two, two decimal places almost yeah. identical so i think there's nothing really i mean I, you have to be a bit wary comparing hazard ratios sure. between trials but they you know they are strikingly identical with apalutamide and enzalutamide to abirasterone the the other way of looking at it is is around toxicity so uh, you know some patients don't tolerate enza very well obviously some patients don't tolerate abby they get the sure. problems but you've got those sorts of considerations and you know small print things like seizures on enza being contraindicated and I, my impression is that older patients frail frailer patients get knocked around more by enza than abby but broadly, I think for the majority of patients, they'll do fine with either. 
obviously ends with less monitoring. So, so like at the moment in the UK, with all the COVID stuff rattling around, we're, we're tending to give more ENSA because it's easier to do by remote control. Um, uh, but the other thing is we, we, we showed our um, quality of life data um, in from Stampede at GU ASCO. And we've got around 600 men who were contemporaneously recruited to either Abbey or the, dose, the tail end of the dosi arm. So we've got head-to-head -head comparisons. And the thing that was quite surprising to me with that is I thought, well, we'll of course, we'll see a, a, yeah, an 18-week hit to quality of life with chemo, which we saw. But they didn't get better for a year, um, which I was really surprised by. Um, and it took... Um, even at two years, they were still, the, the dosi patients hadn't caught up with the Abbey on quality of life. And the quality of life with Abbey sits above the ADT only quality of life, which, which, which Kim Chi reported in Latitude as well. Mm -hmm. um, whereas with the ENSA and the APA trials as well, the quality of life scores run together. So it, it does suggest that Abbey gives you a, maybe a little bit of steroid, gives you a quality of life boost. But as you've already highlighted, there may be a long-term toxicity penalty for that, at least in some men. I don't know. We'll, we'll so we'll, we'll have to get Chris Sweeney on one of these with you to debate the chemo yes. versus Abby up front. I've heard him talk uh, intelligently and, and convincingly about, you know, giving chemo up front and saving Abby, et cetera, for later. Uh, I can't yeah. I can't debate you intelligently, but I, I think that would be fun to do that because I know uh, he feels strongly about about giving chemo up front. Yeah. Yeah, I don't. I mean, I. I mean, I. It's. I mean, I think they're both very good options. Sure. I don't want to say one is worse than the sure. other. Chris, Chris is, of course, entirely correct. You, you've got a different salvage options if you use chemo up front. Um, but and, and also less monitoring and stuff. So it depends. Yeah. I mean, again, for the same cohort with Stampede, the, the overall survival has probably come out quite similarly. Yeah. If you start with OC or start with Abby or Enter, so. Uh, yeah, I'm not. It, it, yeah, it, it, if survival's your driver, it doesn't help you answer the question. Right. It, it, so. Are there patients in your practice that you give dosi to up front? Are there a certain subset, visceral disease, et cetera, et cetera? Uh, right now, it's more. It, it's the same as CRPC. We're just having the same discussion. We say, I, I, I think that the, the broad message is you can have A then B or B then A. Yeah. Uh, um, and you'll end up with the same survival, but you'll have a different route map. And it's kind of what suits people's lifestyles. Most patients, uh, until recently, we didn't have the choice in the UK. We had to give them doses. I see. Um, uh, because of fun, it's still going through nice. We current, because of COVID, we do have a choice because it's uh, uh, Abby and Enza are viewed as more COVID safe than dosy. Yeah, okay. Possibly erroneously, to be honest, right. <laughs> but, 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 uh, but anyway, gives you options. Um, yeah. So, so at the moment we're giving more ENSA because it's the simplest to manage in terms of monitoring. I see. But, uh, Makes sense. I, I think in terms of survival, I, but I think it has to be individualized. There's not a single right answer to the question. Fair enough. So anything else, we're, we'll wrap up. Um, anything else you want to talk about with the data you're presenting or Stampede in general, maybe other arms that are coming? Yeah, so so the the thing that we've got um, pending is um, uh, radical therapy to up to five oligometastatic sites. Okay. Um, the newly diagnosed oligometastatic disease is we've got funding for that. We're just in writing the protocol and set up for that. That that's that's had a bit of a delay, a bit shoved in it by COVID as well, um, and. Um, 
but we hope we're hoping to launch that early next year. And we're we're considering other things like PSMA lutetium. We're in discussions and um, a PARP inhibitor. We've been yep. discussing for a while. Now it's it's how we crystallise that down into a trial that works. But yeah, I, we're hope we're hopeful we'll be launching a PARP inhibitor randomization of some sorts next year. Yeah, and a lot of a lot of those oligomet efforts ongoing here as well. SBRT and integration and. You know, so yeah, same. Exactly. I think that's really sort of where the field is going, interestingly. So, uh, well, listen, thanks for your time. This has been most, in, I, I like doing these better without Tom. I may, I may dump him. He's really <laughs> gone much more smoothly. But again, congrats, not, not yeah. only on the ESMO data, but, but Stampede. It's, it's, yeah. you know, a, a legacy of great data that's, that's helped patients, frankly. So, congrats on that to you and the whole team. Thank you very much. Yeah, no, it's obviously a huge team effort, Stampede. Yeah. All right, Nick. Cheers. Good to talk. Let's do I it again. All right. Yeah, cheers. All right. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye.